You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Different people at different points, uh, they kind of uh, give these, uh, these big long sermons or prayers or songs of hymns. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what we're going through today is actually uh, Mary's song, uh, Praising God Because She... Uh, she has conceived uh, the, uh, the Holy One, right? And that's what Gabriel uh, kind of communicated to her. And, uh, and so the context of this is this is, uh, this is Luke 1, um, and uh, um, Mary is, uh, uh, she, she just found out that her cousin is also uh, pregnant and um, who was previously barren. And, uh, and this, is the, this is the instance where uh, Mary uh, is excited to see her, and then uh, she, she mentions that her, her child jumped with joy uh, in the womb, and that was John the Baptist. Um, and, uh, and so then uh, even she was filled with the Spirit and gave like a short sermon, but then uh, Mary kind of responds with, uh, with a more uh, kind of longer sermon, and that's what we're going through today. But the, but the main focus of, uh, of Mary's song, or hymn, uh, is joy. It starts off with this idea of joy, uh, and, uh, and joy kind of connects all the major themes uh, throughout the rest uh, of her hymn. And so uh, I'll go ahead and, uh, and read. Uh, it's also called Mary's Magnificent, um, or her Song of Magnificence. And uh, so we'll read this, and then we'll pray, and uh, we'll get into God's Word. So, Luke 1, 46. Um, oh, also, I, uh, sorry about the PowerPoint. Um, I had like this whole PowerPoint built, and then it just erased on me, just totally evaporated into uh, cyberspace, I suppose. But um, I'm also just taking this as a sign, like maybe the PowerPoint wasn't as good as I thought it was, and God just like <laughs> deleted it for me. So, uh, <laughs> so it's probably for the best. Um, <laughs> This is uh, Luke 1, uh, 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded, uh, for he has regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is 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 to generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, and he has scattered those who, who were proud in their thoughts and in their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted who were humble, those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty-handed. He has given help to his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Let's pray. Dear God, I just, um, I thank you for um, just this opportunity for us to be in your word. Um, and I thank you for, for the opportunity for uh, just uh, your saints to, uh, to collect and, uh, and commune with each other. As, uh, as we seek to commune with you um, and, uh, and dig into your word, I ask that you, you speak to your church today and that, um, and that you just remove any elements uh, from, uh, from today that, uh, that distract from your purpose or distract uh, from what you're trying to communicate to your people. I ask that you just uh, embolden us and, uh, and vivify our hearts and, and, um, and just make us alive with joy as we look forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior, uh, the birth of your Son, and, um, and our Redeemer. And we love you, and I thank you again for everything that you've given to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, uh, Luke, this, uh, this, uh, this hymn is found in Luke, um, and, uh, and there's, there's a lot of points that Mary's making, um, and, uh, and man, like really digging into this, this passage, uh, there's a lot of Old Testament references that are kind of being pulled in, um, 
Uh, even, even just the birth of Christ, uh, the Old Testament is just kind of uh, rife with prophecies of Jesus being born. Um, and uh, that, honestly, this was the hardest part of, of getting this sermon together, was just what, what, what do I not talk about, right? Uh, not what do I talk about, but like what, what do I have to leave out? Um, I mean, it starts all the way back in Genesis 3. Um, uh, God is, is giving curses out to uh, to Adam or to uh, uh, to the serpent, and then Eve, and then uh, Adam, and uh, when it was Eve's turn, her curse came with a blessing or a promise, um, and uh, and so God tells Eve, right, there will be there will come a one, uh, a seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, right, and uh, and it's it's we generally glance gla- glance over texts like that because we're just like okay, seed of the woman, right? It's someone that's going to be born. But in ancient civilizations, you have to understand that uh, the women weren't the ones that had the seed, right? So a seed of a woman is very peculiar language. It's, it's very odd, right? Uh, but God, he, he said that in a very specific way. It's, it's almost as if the, the wording is that whatever this one is coming that will crush the head of the serpent, uh, whatever this one is won't be a seed of the man, but it will be a seed of a woman. And that's very much what we see in Mary. Uh, and there's, uh, there's all these theological uh, implications for this. And again, I could go on and on about uh, the Bible makes it very clear that a sin nature, Adam, is our representative. And so our sin nature is passed on through our representative, Adam. Uh, but Jesus didn't have Adam as his representative. He didn't have a father. So we see how like, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. There's theological implications to the virgin birth. Um, but also, like, God just didn't make a new Adam. He just didn't make another new mud man, and just that's the Redeemer. But, like, instead, he actually, Christ, entered into our human condition by being born of a woman. He's one of us. He stepped into our place. He lived the life that we should live. Again, just, like, the theologies that we could just go on and on and on about. Um, we just don't have time. Uh, or the very obvious uh, prophecies, uh, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, uh, Malachi 7, Malachi 5. Uh, we could go on and on about even Isaiah 54. Uh, there's just so many Old Testament prophecies that we could pull from. But I really want today for us to focus in on exactly what Mary said. Uh, and using the, uh, the actual words that she used... And also, I, I want to highlight the fact that Luke is the one that's actually recounting these. Now, the way Luke writes his books, which will be Luke and Acts, all of them are structured in very similar ways, where uh, Luke, at the very beginning, uh, the reason why he's writing is he's writing to an individual known as Theophilus. Uh, we don't know much about this individual. It was probably a, um, a made-up name to protect his identity, uh, because Christians weren't super popular back then. Uh, but what we do know is that he was probably some kind of Roman official, which, again, would have been very unpopular if a Roman official was a Christian, right? Um, so, uh, but Luke is writing an orderly account. He's trying to give Theophilus a history of the things of Christ and the spreading of his gospel. That's what Luke has tried to accomplish. And, and the way that Luke structures his books is every time the story or the narrative or the history takes a turn or something critical is changing, he stops the narrative, he stops the history, he stops the story, and he gives us a sermon or a big long hymn. And that's exactly what we see uh, with Mary. Luke is transitioning away from uh, kind of conversations about John the Baptist, uh, and he's transitioning into specifically the birth of Christ. And Mary marks uh, the start of that, uh, of that transition. So, uh, if you guys ever read Luke and Acts again, and you see a big long sermon, uh, that's Luke's cueing you into, hey, something's changing. Pay attention. Something's happening, right? And that's very much what we see in, uh, in Mary's Magnificent. Now, her, uh, her hymn, uh, it, uh, the way that it's structured, and because I really want to zero in on, on her hymn uh, and what, uh, what she is probably pulling from, more likely, uh, is her, uh, her hymn uh, is almost shot for shot uh, a, um, a kind of retelling of Hannah's hymn when she found out that she was pregnant with Samuel. And if you don't know this story, uh, Hannah, she was one of two wives, and uh, the other wife, uh, she was uh, having a bunch of kids, but Hannah was barren. Hannah couldn't have any kids. 
And so she goes to, uh, to the temple, and she, uh, she's praying to God uh, fervently, and, um, and uh, so fervently, in fact, that Eli, the high priest, thought that she was drunk. She was just kind of muttering nonsense. Uh, and so she, uh, she communicates to Eli that, uh, no, 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 um, I'm just bereaved in my soul uh, about this. And, um, and so Eli kind of gives her uh, a blessing and encourages her, and she swears before the Lord that if God gives her a son, that she will dedicate him to the Lord forever. And, uh, and then God answers that prayer, and she gets pregnant with Samuel. And uh, if you don't know the story of Samuel, uh, he is very much a Christ figure in the Old Testament. Um, he, uh, he was born, and then he was, uh, he was given to Eli, the high priest. Uh, so he grew up in the temple. Um, he, uh, he eventually became a, a priest and a prophet. Um, and he was also a judge. Um, he was the last judge uh, over Israel. Um, which, again, kind of mirrors the roles of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. But Samuel is prophet, priest, and judge. So again, you see all these similarities, and, uh, and again, Hannah's, um, Hannah's uh, hymn uh, is very similar to Mary's, so I'd just like to read that to you, and that's 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. It says, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. You see how both women, they start with joy. This is their first reaction, their first initial reaction, uh, is they start with joy. Uh, There was no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there was no one beside you, nor is there uh, any rock like our God. Do not go on boasting so very proudly, and do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. So again, you see she's denouncing pride. Uh, the bows of the mighty are broken to pieces, but those who have stumbled strap on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to be hungry. And again, Mary talks about this, being filled. Those who are hungry uh, are filled with good things. Even the infertile woman gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord puts to death and he makes alive and he brings down to Sheol and he brings up. The Lord makes poor the rich and he humbles and he also exalts. Again, we see these, uh, these reflections in Mary where it's the poor become rich uh, and God cares for the poor. But he sends away the rich empty-handed. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the garbage heap to seat with the nobles. And he gives them a seat of honor uh, as an inheritance. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he sat the earth upon them. He watches over the feet of his godly ones, uh, but the wicked ones are silent, silenced in darkness. For not, by the might, uh, for not by might shall a person prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be terrified. Uh, against them he will thunder in heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. And uh, um, yeah, so there, there's, uh, there's just so many similarities, and, uh, and it very well could have been the case that um, uh, there, some scholars disagree with this, or it's somewhat speculative, but um, Jewish women, when they were growing up, they weren't necessarily educated on the Torah like the young men, right? The young men, they memorized uh, much of the Torah um, and even beyond if they were good at it, uh, but, uh, but what did the women get? They just kind of got what their moms knew. And, uh, and uh, somewhat frequently, or what, uh, what would have been uh, traditional, is that uh, the Jewish women learned this song from Her- Hannah. Uh, this is something that would have been, uh, this would have been uh, very practically important uh, for them, is learning uh, what sa- Hannah's response to, uh, to childbearing was. And so it's very likely that Mary, knowing this hymn, uh, very much her hymn recalls or echoes all the things that that Hannah proclaimed. And so there's three things I want us to point out that both uh, Hannah and Mary share in their hymns uh, is this idea, this one idea, is that uh, both of them, and they're also calling us to rejoice, rejoice in the coming of Jesus because of three different things. 
Rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he exalts the humble and the poor. Rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he opposes the proud. And rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he is rich in mercy toward his people. And so this first point uh, is that uh, we rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he exalts the humble and the poor. Uh, I'll just pull out uh, the, uh, the actual selected verses in which uh, Mary specifically points these out or highlights these ideas. In verse 48, uh, she says, uh, For he has regarded the humble state of his bondservant, and that's how Mary refers to herself as the bondservant. Uh, she goes on to say that he has exalted those who were humble. Uh, and in verse 53, she says, uh, And he has filled the hungry with good things. And over and over, we, we find this idea in the, in the New Testament. Uh, and it's also very interesting that Luke kind of focuses in on, the, uh, on these things. Uh, more than any other New Testament author, uh, Luke, in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, he communicates and overemphasizes the caring of the poor and the widows uh, and the marginalized and the sick. Luke is always uh, emphasizing these points. Um, and uh, even... <laughs> Even so much where like, we find, for example, we'll, we'll be reading through um, in Luke's account, uh, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just read it now. Uh, so that's Luke 6, uh, 20 through 23, and uh, the Sermon on the Mount is actually found in Matthew 7 in its entirety, uh, but in Luke 6, we have uh, some reference to it. Um, so Luke 6, 20 through 23 Jesus, uh, and it says, and he raised his eyes toward his disciples, that's Jesus, and he began saying, blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you uh, when people hate you, and when they exclude you and insult you, and scorn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and jump for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers used to treat the prophets in the same exact way. Now what's interesting about this is that in Luke's account, these are, uh, these are also known as the Beatitudes. Uh, in Matthew's account, uh, Matthew recounts Jesus as saying, uh, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, but Luke, you see how he just, he makes this emphasis, he makes this point of emphasis where it says in Luke's account, uh, blessed are the poor. Not in spirit, blessed are the poor. You see how, how Luke is highlighting this idea of we care for the poor. The poor, that, that's our mission. We go to the poor, we go to the needy, we go to the marginalized, we go to the sick. Why? Because that's what our Christ did. These are the people that need the gospel more. Right? Even Christ, he says that uh, I didn't come for the righteous, but I came for the sick. And the irony is, is that, uh, that those of us who are not poor uh, or, um, or poor in spirit, uh, we often have a hard time recognizing our need for a Savior, don't we? We feel like we're, we don't need saving. We're doing pretty good for ourselves. I often hear people say, uh, yeah, but I'm a pretty good person but you're not, right? And it's so hard to see that when we can mask our depravity with some kind of token morality. But instead, Luke is, is, is highlighting this idea that the poor are just very over-aware of their brokenness. And in a very real way, the reason why the poor and the marginalized and the sick, the reason why they're so receptive to the gospel is because they see the world as it actually is. Whereas the rest of us, uh, wealth and possessions, it tends to blind us to the realities of our condition, which is depravity and walking away from the Lord and rejecting the things of God. And so you see why Luke is emphasizing this overemphasis on the poor, like this ministry to the poor, this ministry to, uh, to the needy, the ministry because these people see the gospel the most clearly. But also, uh, we need these people, uh, even the rich need these people, because we need them to show us how things actually are in the world, don't we? 
If we are so blinded by our wealth, if we are so blinded by possessions, it's so easy to get comfortable in those situations. But when we are charitable, when we give to the poor, when we minister to those who need, we can see their condition because their condition is very much all of our condition, isn't it? Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he, uh, uh, he did a lot of um, uh, missionary work, and he would, uh, he would go to kind of poor cities and preach uh, to, um, uh, to miners before they go down into the mines. And, uh, and he, he would recount this phenomenon where uh, if, if all these people start getting saved, generally these miners, these poor miners um, and just kind of gruff individuals, uh, they would get their paychecks and they would squander it on, uh, on alcohol uh, and prostitutes and gambling, Right. And, uh, but then what he notices as people started getting saved, these towns, these small shanty towns, uh, they actually started uh, prospering. People started saving their money. They weren't spending it frivolously. They were rejecting uh, kind of debauchery. And these towns actually started prospering because now there's actually economics involved. Uh, they're saving their money. They're investing their money. They're working harder and earning more money. Uh, they're investing into their kids, and their kids are growing up knowing how to handle money. Um, however, he also noticed that eventually what ends up happening is that people get too much money. The towns become too prosperous. And then what do they do with that excess money? They start setting up casinos and brothels and bars and taverns. And then they go right back into the depravity that they were called out of. And Jonathan Edwards, he, he basically he came to this conclusion uh, that Christianity as a uh, as kind of an economic system is self-defeating because it just takes you out of one debauchery into another, eventually. And from his position, the only escape from this cycle is Christian charity. Is making, making money uh, in the name of God and living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ and then giving it away. This is our escape, and this is what Luke is calling us into, and this is very much a focus in Mary's uh, Magnificent, is that we rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he is the one that exalts the poor and the humble. He is the one that raises them up. He is the one that communicates his gospel most clearly too. And in that same way, we too need to recognize our poor and humble state. And there's, there's a lot of joy in this, and if you've, if you've been in a situation where you've been completely humbled, or maybe financially you were just completely poor, in a very real way, you recognize this. And for those of us who are struggling financially, um, or for those of us who, who find ourselves just humble because we recognize our own shortcomings, I want to encourage you today uh, that we have joy. We have joy because Christ came. And no longer do we need to worry about getting out of these financial holes, or no longer do we need to worry about getting out of these, uh, these humble means or these humble beginnings, because in the end, it's Christ is the one that exalts us. It's Christ is the one that takes care of us. Even in, in, uh, in Mary's uh, Magnificent, she, she talks about um, how uh, he has brought down the rulers uh, from their thrones and he has exalted those who are humble. Uh, he will uh, fill the hungry with good things. It's not necessarily food. We can go hungry, right? But good things, what would that entail? Something like peace, rest, everlasting life, life abundant. So he fills the hungry with good things, but he sends away the rich empty-handed. And then she goes on to say, uh, and he has given help to his servant Israel. You see how in her sermon, it's God is the one that's giving to the, to the poor and to the humble, but then he leaves the rich empty-handed. And this leads us to our next point, is that we rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he opposes the proud. Now, that should be our response, is that we rejoice in this. However, I think often we, all, we are the ones that are proud, right? Often we are the ones that are rich, uh, that are finding ourselves empty-handed. 
But Mary's calling us to rejoice in this, rejoicing in the opposition to the proud. And if we, if we are uh, recognizing that the gospel is the object of scrutiny and the object of ridicule, uh, we should also recognize that, uh, uh, that the need for justice is, is, uh, is very real. Those who are proud, they are proud because they find themselves to be righteous or themselves to be an object uh, of, of worship. And if that is the case, then they have rejected worship of our Lord. Here, Mary, uh, the, uh, the selected passages where she actually talks about uh, rejoicing in the opposition of the proud. Uh, in verse 51, she says, uh, and he has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts of their hearts. Uh, 52, uh, she says, and he has brought down the rulers from their thrones. 53, and sent away the rich empty-handed. Now, this, uh, this can be a bit heavy-handed, right? Uh, if, uh, and what I, I want to emphasize this point, what I'm not talking about is, uh, is something like a, um, a poverty gospel. So we talk about it at this church, or at least maybe me more than Ovi. I like to pick at prosperity gospels, uh, preachers, because um, it's easy. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> maybe I should scale back, but... There is an alternative. There's another side to this where there is a, uh, a poverty gospel where there is, uh, it's the belief that at no point in time should a Christian ever be prosperous or rich. And if you find yourself with a lot of money, you should give it all away and, uh, and only hang on to uh, just a little bit. We all should live in poverty even though some of us may make a lot of money. I don't think that that's what God is calling us into, and I don't want to make this point even implicitly or accidentally. So, I'd like to be explicit with all of us. God is not calling you uh, to be poor or homeless or anything. Uh, great examples of this uh, is, um, and again, I'm, I'm trying to stick to, uh, to Luke. Um, and uh, so, in the book of Acts, uh, we find Lydia. If you don't know Lydia, she was a purveyor of purple, right? Uh, she actually made purple dye, and this is what royalty would actually dye their clothes with. And so she, would, uh, she was actually uh, in with all the royalty because everyone was buying their purple dye from her. So she's very well off, a uh, very successful individual, uh, but she gets saved. And, uh, and Luke recounts that uh, it was the Philippian church actually met in her house, right? Uh, and at no point does it seem to indicate that she quit her job, Right? Uh, or that she gave away uh, all of her uh, investments uh, or anything like that. But instead, Lydia was used by the Lord to actually minister to the saints. Uh, another one would be Cornelius, uh, Acts 10. Uh, we see Peter, uh, he's, um, uh, he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, uh, who was a very high Roman official. Um, maybe not official, but, uh, but at least uh, in the military or the army, uh, he was of high, uh, high status. Um, and again, at no point did Peter tell him, you need to quit your job and go make tents or whatever. Um, another one is, uh, uh, this is outside of Luke, but Philemon, uh, he's another individual. Uh, he, was, uh, he was of high status. Um, and we know this because he had, uh, he had slaves. One of those slaves was an individual by the name of Onesimus uh, who actually ran away. He ran to Rome and Paul happened to be in prison in Rome. So, he connects with Paul. Paul converts him to Christianity. He disciples Onesimus, and he sends Onesimus back to his slave owner, to Philemon. Um, but in, uh, when he sends him back, he writes a letter to Philemon, and so Onesimus hands his slave owner a letter, which a runaway slave is basically a, it's a death sentence if you get caught. Right? So Onesimus comes back to his slave owner, hands him a letter from Paul, and then Paul reads a letter and, uh, and Paul is encouraging Philemon to, uh, to use his wealth and his prosperity to love his slave, Onesimus, and let him go free. Uh, and if you don't know anything about the abolition, uh, at least here in America, a lot of the Christians or the abolitionists, they use the book of Philemon uh, to fight against slavery. And so, but we see this individual, Philemon, he was very rich. He was of high status. Uh, again, uh, the, it seems as though uh, the church in Colossae actually probably met in Philemon's home. 
And so he used this wealth to minister to the saints, to do good things for the kingdom of God. Um, even John the Baptist in Luke 3, uh, John the Baptist, uh, he was not rich or poor, right? But uh, when he was baptizing people, Luke 3 talks about how uh, uh, John was even baptizing tax collectors. So tax collectors were coming out uh, and being baptized. And, uh, and so John, he ridicules the Pharisees, uh, calling them a pit of vipers um, or a brood of vipers. Um, and he ridicules them uh, for trying to escape the coming judgment by getting this perfunctory baptism. And so everyone was terrified because they're just like, if the baptism didn't work for the Pharisees, like, what am I doing here? And so tax collectors came to John and said, what am I going to do? Like, what do I do now? And so John tells the tax collectors, just take what you need, right, and be satisfied with what is required of you. Don't take more than what you need. And that was the problem of the, of the tax collectors, is that they stole from the people that they were taking taxes from. So being satisfied in the wages. You would expect John to say, quit being a tax collector. But he didn't say that, did he? He didn't tell them to relinquish their role of, uh, of prominence. He didn't tell them to stop being rich. He just told them to be satisfied with what they are making and their, uh, what was required of them. Uh, even the soldiers, they asked the same thing. Well, what are we supposed to do? And John says, don't extort money. Don't use your authority uh, as a means to get rich. But instead, just be satisfied with what you've been given. And again, if what they were doing was a problem, John would have told them, stop being a soldier. Stop being a tax collector. He didn't even tell the Pharisees to stop being Pharisees. Instead, what he told them to do was to live a life in that position, in that vocation, and working for the kingdom of God. So again, I want to reject this idea that, uh, that yes, God does oppose the proud. And he does send away the rich empty-handed. And we, and Mary is rejoicing in this fact. What I don't want you to hear is, I'm rich, maybe I should, it's God going to oppose me. I don't want you to hear that. But what I do want us to, maybe, maybe there are some real questions here, is do we rejoice in God opposing the proud? And if you don't find yourself rejoicing in that, if you find yourself terrified of that fact, maybe that's your wake-up call, right? Maybe this is our opportunity to do just like the tax collectors and the soldiers did with John the Baptist. What do I do? Be satisfied with what you have, right? Be humble before the Lord. Because this would be bad news. If you're not humble before the Lord, he will humble you. It's far better for us to come to the Lord humble and poor as opposed to him making us humble and poor. Now, from our perspective, that's something to be avoided. Uh, but from God's perspective, this is an act of mercy and grace. If he does humble you, if you do find yourself in a situation where he does humble you or he does make you poor, rejoice in that too. That's a sign that your father loves you. And he's not willing to let you go on in a life rejecting his mercy and his grace. So a great example of God opposing, uh, opposing the proud. Again, I want to stay in Luke. Uh, let Luke speak for himself. Uh, Luke 12. Um, this, is, uh, this is the story of Herod. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an odd story, but, uh, but it really captures this idea. And then again, Luke is trying to emphasize these same points where we see over and over and over in Luke and Acts of, uh, of this call to care for the poor, but we also see over and over and over in the book of Luke and Acts is God opposing the proud uh, and, um, and the haughty. Not only do we see it here in King Herod, uh, we also see it in the book of Acts um, with... Um, um, with, uh, with the sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer. We see it with, um, uh, with Ananias and Sapphira. We see it with, um, uh, with um, the, the sorcerer called Bar-Jesus uh, in, um, in Salmas, city of Salmas. So here uh, we see in Luke 12, uh, Luke 12, 20, it says, Now he was very angry uh, with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is Herod. And with one mind, they came to him. 
And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, uh, they were asking for peace because their country was supported with grain from the king's country. So there's some uh, political strife going on, um, and uh, and Herod was frustrated with the people of Tyre and Sidon. uh, And so he has kind of resolved the political strife going on in that day, uh, and the people are getting their grain. And it says on verse, in verse 21, On an appointed day, after putting on his royal apparel, Herod took a seat in the rostrum and began delivering an address to them, the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the people repeatedly cried out, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. It's a pretty intense story, right? But again, this, this capture, very much captures the idea uh, within the book of Luke of God opposes the proud. And again, we should find joy in this. We rejoice in this. Why? Because if that's you, he, he opposes the proud for your benefit. He opposes your pride so that you can see the world as it really is, just like the poor do. When he opposes the proud, uh, this relieves us from the oppression uh, if the pride is coming from the people that are over us. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the politics and, and we see corruption everywhere within the political system. And it's so easy to get bogged down and, uh, and just discouraged by all of this. But just like Mary, I think we, too, should take this time of the year to rejoice in the fact that Christ has come. And Christ is the one that opposes the proud. And there will come a day when he opposes the proud in a very real and manifest way. We call that, on, we call that the day of judgment. And this leads us to our last point where it's we rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he is rich in mercy toward his people. So here the the selected passages where uh, where Mary makes this clear in her hymn is uh, verse 48. It says, For behold, from now on all generations call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and and holy is his name. Uh, Verse 50, uh, she says, And his mercy is to generation after generation. Verse 54, uh, she says, And he has given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now this portion, again, I could just go on and on and on about Old Testament references, indicating the same exact thing. But again, staying in Luke, I'd like for us to, uh, to turn to Luke 13, verse 31. It's Luke 13, verse 31. And it says, At this very time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Jesus, Go away and leave this place, because Herod wants to kill you. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I'm casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must go on my journey today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as the hen gathers her young under her wings, but you are unwilling. Behold, your house has left you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this might not seem like mercy, does it? This is actually a a kind of a call of condemnation against Jerusalem. But the mercy that you see here, and this is, is, uh, again, this idea that Luke is kind of portraying, is Luke is uh, very much throughout his book in uh, in Luke and Acts, uh, he's portraying this idea that God is always merciful toward his people. Uh, Even we see this in the book of Acts where every time Paul takes the gospel to a new city, where does he always go first? To the synagogues. He always takes the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. And again, this this is always an act of mercy. Even though the Jewish people historically and regularly reject Paul's messages throughout the book of Acts and in the gospel of Luke, who were Jesus's biggest uh, uh, kind of contrarian 
Uh, it was the Jewish leaders. Uh, and the people that responded to the gospel the most were the poor and the marginalized, the tax collectors, the Samaritans. It's the people that the Jewish leaders had rejected. And so we very much see this theme all throughout Luke and Acts, and we see it highlighted here even in Mary's Magnificent. Is this that idea that, that mercy is still given to them. The opportunity to respond is still offered. People often get wrapped up in this, well, if God knows that I'm going to be saved or he knows that I'm not going to be saved, then why should, uh, he knows that for everybody, why should we do evangelism at all, right? He knows that they're going to be saved or not be saved. It's not really up to me on whether I share the gospel with them or not. Jesus tended to disagree. He talked to people that he knew weren't going to listen to him all the time. And why would he do this? It's because it's an act of mercy. It's an act of grace. I will give you the opportunity. Even though you will squander it, I'm still giving you the opportunity. And just allowing a people group to just squander or wallow in their filth with never throwing them a lifeline, that is the most unmerciful thing you could do. It might be just. It might be warranted. It might be what they deserve. But that's not what God does, is it? He gives them what they don't deserve, and that is mercy. And here we even see Jesus, where he says uh, he's, he's leaving because uh, he, can't, he's, he can't be killed outside of Jerusalem because he says uh, all the prophets are killed in Jerusalem, so i got to be killed there. And again, Luke is making that very clear. Uh, it's also funny how the disciples always seem to be like scratching their head, where it's like, what does he mean by that? And then he dies, and they're just like, well, I guess it's over. And Jesus comes back, he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I couldn't have made this more clear. I'm supposed to die in Jerusalem, and then I'm coming back three days later. So, it always makes me funny when I see passages like this. Um, It's also funny because the apostles wrote these gospels, and so they're just like, yeah, we missed it. Uh, (laughs) They just lean into it, and it's good for them. Um, But uh, but here, Jesus is making it very clear that it's uh, it's not his time to die, but then he goes into this diatribe or this uh, this kind of excursus or this sideline conversation about just lamenting over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together like a hen that gathers her young in her wings. Like this is such a, a loving act, such a, a, a soft and compassionate desire in Jesus. And also, it, uh, you, you see kind of like the eternality of Jesus, where how often he wanted to do this. Uh, you see even probably from eternity past, is Jesus had this desire to just gather Jerusalem together. Give them mercy. Just, just comfort them and hug them. But it says, but you were unwilling. So it's the desire of God to give them mercy. And that's exactly what we see in Mary's Magnificent. Is this idea that uh, he has given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God does not forget his mercy. He does not forget his promises. But instead he remembers his mercy and he is rich in mercy toward his people. He always gives us this opportunity to over and over and over to repent from our sins, turn away from our broken and depraved lives, and to turn toward Christ and give us something fuller. There's another uh, pretty interesting aspect in Mary's Magnificent that we haven't covered yet, Um, and it might be hard to see without a PowerPoint, so again, I'm sorry. But uh, the first half of Mary's Magnificent uh, is her praising God for what God has done for her. Uh, the gener- generations will call me blessed forever and ever, right? The Lord has sought me. The Lord has exalted me. The Lord has given me favor or his bondservant favor. So you see how, how, how she's just, she's praising God for what God has done for her. But then the second half is she starts talking about other people, how God opposes the rich, but he exalts the poor and the humble. And other, it, it, it turns to this, this outside perspective where it's God has given mercy to his people, to all of Israel. 
And this is a very interesting aspect, and we see this in a lot of the psalms, is as the psalmists are talking, as they're praising God, uh, proper praise always turns outward. Proper praise, when we praise God and we, we reflect on what he's given to us, the proper response is always looking at the world, looking at others. And this is something that I, I want us to not miss in Mary's Magnificent and in this hymn that we've been going through. Is that very much this last point is that we rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he is rich in mercy toward his people is that this is an outward expression of the joy that we have and the joy that we celebrate during Christmas. Is we have been given so much. We have been given a savior. We have been given salvation and redemption and life and rest and peace or shalom. But it can't stop there. Mary doesn't stop there either, does she? She doesn't just stop with God has blessed me. God has found favor in me, or I've found favor in God. But instead, she talks about how God is merciful to everyone. God is merciful to those who are, uh, who are not me. He's merciful to the humble uh, and, uh, and to the poor. And this is, this is kind of a, uh, my, last, my last point, or my last emphasis that I would like for all of us to recognize. Is this Christmas season, we, we rejoice, we have joy and it's hard for you to have joy when you are poor and humble, isn't it? But that's what joy is. Is it's joy regardless of your circumstances. Uh, it's hard to have joy when God is the one that's humbling you and making you poor, when he opposes the proud. It's hard to have joy in that. But again, if we see it for what it is, it's your father loving you. It's your father removing the barriers from your life so that you can see the world more accurately. You can see yourself more accurately. And you can see God more accurately. This is what we rejoice in. And lastly, we rejoice in his mercy toward his people. That includes you. And that includes other people outside of this church. God has extended mercy to them. Now, will they respond? They might, they might not. But should that prevent us from sharing this mercy with the outside world? Should this stop us from, from turning our joy outward, just like Mary? And it should never be the case. And I want us to encourage us uh, this Christmas season uh, is that as we go through this, as we, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, as we, as we rejoice in what God has given to us, that we take this opportunity to just reflect on everyone else in the world. We take this opportunity, we take this Christmas season, we take this season that has turned into uh, to greed and selfishness, but we turn this Christmas season into something where we just stop thinking about ourselves so much. We stop focusing on the things that we have. We stop focusing on the things that we want. We stop focusing on uh, if we're making our family members happy because, or uh, my kids are happy because they got the toys that they want. What if we stop thinking about ourselves so much? When we do that, we actually participate in what God has given to us, this joy. This is the proper response to joy. This is the proper response to praising our Lord. We see this over and over in the Psalms, and we see this in Mary too. And we can learn a lot from this, and I'd like us to just encourage uh, each one of you. We have a tree back there where we write down the names of, of lost souls that we're praying for. Let that be our focus this Christmas season. Let our focus being uh, caring for those who are outside uh, of the covenant of Christ. Those who have not tasted the grace and the mercy that he's extended to all people. Let's focus on them. Let's pray for them. Let's care for them. And let's share the gospel with them. So just to reiterate uh, one last time that we rejoice in the coming of Jesus because he is rich in mercy toward his people. He exalts the poor and the humble and he opposes the proud. But I'd like for us to make this a little bit more practical or applicable to us. Kind of change each one of these points where it's while we rejoice and we celebrate the coming of Jesus, 
as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate Jesus' coming and his second coming, let's remember to wait for the Lord to exalt us when we are humble and poor. It's not our job to promote ourselves, but it's God's job to promote us. While we rejoice and we celebrate the coming of Jesus, let us remember to not be proud or haughty, but instead be charitable. Just like what Jonathan Edward found, charity is our only escape for just more debauchery. And while we rejoice and we celebrate the coming of Jesus, let us remember to share the good news of his mercy toward all of us. Let's pray. God, I, uh, I thank you again for, um, for everything that you've given to us and, and, uh, and for giving us this word. And I thank you for, uh, most importantly, just giving us uh, your son. The mercy that you extended to all people uh, in, in uh, sending your son to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died so that we can participate in the life that he lives. It's through that Christ that we've been given eternal life, we've been given redemption, but it's also through his work and through his passion and through his resurrection we've been given his spirit. And I thank you for that spirit that shapes us into the image of Christ, that spirit that turns us into something uh, that, uh, that was just an image bearer, into something that is an actual child of God. I thank you for the new creation that you've started in each and every one of us. And I thank you for the new creation that you will complete in glory. I ask that you just, you, uh, you open the hearts and the minds of everyone um, in your church that we can rejoice and we can praise you more accurately. And I ask that uh, that joy that you give to us, that we, uh, it always turns outward the way that you've always intended it to be. I ask that this church is not uh, self-centered, is not so focused on what we need or that what we can get out of a situation. But I ask that you just always orient our hearts toward others just like you did. We love you. Thank you again for everything that you've given to us. And most importantly, I thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.